Father, we ask that you will be near to us this hour. I pray that even as you have promised that you would be in our midst whenever we gather, we trust you for that. We pray that we'll be attentive to the voice of your Spirit. So many things around us clamoring for attention and, and they become a part of our personalities and, and our minds are filled with all these extraneous thoughts. I pray, Father, that <clears throat> uh, we will purposely allow the Spirit of God to have reign, free reign in our hearts and minds during these next few minutes that we might hear from you, regardless of what is said, that the voice of the Spirit might be heard in our hearts. Lord, I pray that you will meet each need here this morning. I pray that throughout our Sunday school today you'll be at work. I pray you'll be with Larissa as she is uh, speaking in the heart-to-heart class this morning and, and with the others in the various Sunday school classes and in the service. We pray for your dynamic presence in Jesus' name. Amen. In the 13th chapter of the book of Numbers, we find that we have the account of the spies being sent out into the land of Canaan to discover whether this land, well, the, the, the actual statement was they were to, put, to go into the land to discover the route by which they should go. In other words, what would be the best invasion route for the land? But of course, what it turned out to be was to discover whether the land was capable of holding them and whether they were capable of a successful invasion. And we looked last week at uh, verses 4 through 15, which named the various individuals, the 12 men that were sent out, leaders of their various tribes to go into the land and to spy out the land, to make a reconnaissance of the land. And uh, what's interesting is, of course, that you and I remember the names of two of the spies, but we totally forget the names of 10 of the spies. You look down through the pages of recorded history uh, and you discover that there are thousands and thousands of individuals who were important in their day who have long since been forgotten. But a few individuals who may have not been known by very many in their day are yet known to us today. You know, just offhand, men like St. Augustine, you know, in his day a few knew about him, but in our day, most people who do any reading of early literature, you know, early first millennium literature, why they come across Augustine, whether they're Christians or not, uh, because he was one of the first to, to actually write out a method of historiography, and as well as, of course, talk about the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. But uh, here we have, of course, Joshua and Caleb, and, and they will be known to us. There's a whole book in the Bible named for one of them, Joshua. And we have songs, you know, that, that we would like to be like Caleb, you man, a man who was willing to trust God and to take that mountain. And these men have been sent out by Moses to spy. Now, we noted last week that it wasn't Moses' idea to begin with. The people said, should we not send out spies? Then Moses recorded that seemed like a good idea to him, but from this passage we have to understand that he went to God about this, and God responded that it was okay to send in the spies, and so they were chosen, and so they were sent. So let's read beginning verse 21 of Numbers chapter 13. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin, as far as Rahab, 
at Labohamath. When they had gone up into the Negev, they came to Hebron, where Ahiman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zon in Egypt. Then they came to the valley of Eshkol, and from there cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes. And they carried it on a pole between two men, with some of the pomegranates and figs. The place was called the valley of Eshkol, because of the cluster which the sons of Israel cut down from there. We have in this passage a basic statement of the route taken by the spies as they went into the land to spy out the land. But what we have is this route given to us only in broadest detail, or I shouldn't say detail, broadest outline. From Kadesh Barnea, and on that little map that I gave to you, you'll notice that way down at the bottom you have Kadesh Barnea. Kadesh Barnea, this, this literally spring in the desert where they were camped. From Kadesh Barnea, they went north, probably passing very near and maybe even stopping at Beersheba. And you'll notice if you go north slightly to the east from Kadesh, you, you see the site of Beersheba. Now Beersheba was important because Beersheba was a center where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had lived for a period of time. Even the well there is known by many as the well of Abraham. And of course today if you go to Beersheba you can find what is thought to have been the well still there and the ruins of early Beersheba not too many miles away is modern Beersheba which of course is a, a city in modern Israel. From there they ascended. Now you can't tell from this map but in Beersheba you're in the Negev. The, the south land, and it's kind of a step land. It's relatively flat. But as you go north, it begins to rise. And uh, before you get to Hebron, you've climbed relatively steeply until you reach the elevation at Hebron, which is close to 3,000 feet above sea level. And from there, they, they would go north. We can only surmise the route from there because we're only given Rahab at Labo Hamath as the next marker. And it would seem to me that most likely from Hebron, since they have gone up to Hebron, that probably they would travel north from Hebron. And you see Jerusalem and Gibeon there. Other cities are not mentioned, but from there you go all the way north to Hatzor. What they would probably do if they connected in with the Via Maris up to the north, which was the main travel route in that day, they would come by the base of what was called the Arbel and is today called the Arbel. Real steep cliffs at the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. Quite, quite a spectacular view from up there, actually, of the Sea of Galilee. But hooking around, maybe, maybe even stopping at the Sea of Galilee for a moment, but going north past Hatzor, past Dan, and all the way up to this region known as Labo Hamath. Now, the term Labo Hamath means entrance to Hamath. So whether there was actually a town called Labo Hamath or not, the commentators uh, argue back and forth about that. No particular site has been discovered that can be known as either Rahab or Labo Hamath. But that's really not too important because if, if you go north from the area of Hatzor, or you know, H-A-Z-O-R, Hazor if you like, but Hatzor they would say, if you go north from there, you'll notice over to the right is the city of Damascus. Now Damascus is... Uh, if, if you think about Lebanon, 
the, the country of Lebanon today. You come in from the coast, there are two ranges of mountains. There's the Lebanon range and the anti-Lebanon range, and in between them there is a valley. And in that valley there runs a river to the south which hooks over to the sea between Tyre and Sidon. It's called the Latani. And so they would have gone up the, the Latani Valley probably, past the source, and then over the uh, watershed into the Orontes River Valley, which runs in the opposite direction. So you have these two rivers that uh, are on opposite sides of a, of a watershed that run in opposite directions of each other, one to the south, the other to the north. To the south, the Latani, to the north, the Orontes. And on the lower Orontes, about halfway between its source and its mouth, is the city of Hamath. And you see it on, on the map there, Hamath. It's thought that the entrance, entrance to Hamath would have been the watershed, the watershed that led into the Orontes Valley. So it's very probable they didn't go any further than that, but about, oh, maybe a third of the way north into what we would today call Lebanon. So from that point to Beersheba was the region that they were spying, which, of course, would actually be beyond what Israel would occupy later, but was within God's gift to them. In fact... Everything inside this dark line was basically God's gift to Israel. He said this is what they should occupy, even beyond it, actually, depending on whether the Wadi al-Arish down here, which you see at the very bottom of the map, the brook of Egypt, is really the, the reference there in Scripture. Some say it's the Nile because it says the river of Egypt as, as having been the uh, southernmost border of what God's grant to Israel was. But whatever the gift was, it was supposed to be to the Euphrates. And the only time they reached the Euphrates was during the time of David and Solomon. But anyway, they, they spied out the land between those two parameters. Now, we're not told whether they followed the same route in both directions. We don't know if they went north all the way to Labahamoth and then came back the same way or, more logically, took a different route through the land. It, whichever is the case, they had to cover at least 600 miles round trip on foot in 40 days. Now, that isn't really that difficult when you think about it because you divide 40 into 600, you end up with 15. Now, 15 miles a day is, is not that hard to walk. It gives you even time to make uh, reconnaissance along the way, to reconnoiter the land as you're traveling along at 15 miles per day. Because they didn't, you know, get up at 9 o'clock and sit around, have their coffee, and get going by 11, you know, like we do when we're trying to go on a vacation. Or, you know, I'm speaking we in general, I, I'm sure. <clears throat> or, or whether, you know, uh, and then, you know, quit at tea time at 4 o'clock. So they were, they were prepared for, for this. And so it wasn't a particularly difficult uh, thing. Now, we're not told whether they traveled as a group of 12 or if they split up. Did they split into two groups of six? Uh, did they split into four groups of three? Uh, we're not told. But because of the information they bring back, it seems as if they probably did split up because they come back with information concerning the coastal plains, they come back with information concerning the, concerning the hill country, and they come back with information concerning the Jordan Valley. So a trip up and a trip back would only cover two out of those three. So it's very probable that they split up and that they reconnoitered the entire land, including the coastal plain, the Jordan Valley, and the hill country in between. Now what we discover here 
is that special note is made of the city of Hebron, as we read it there in verse 22. When they had gone up into the Negev, they came to Hebron, where Ahiman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the, seven, the, the descendants of Anak, were. Now, Hebron was built seven years before Zon in Egypt. Hebron was made special note because it was a very important location in Abraham's life. Abraham camped at Hebron. It was at Hebron that God appeared to Abraham and said, Shall I reveal to Abraham what I am about to do concerning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? It was there that Abraham interceded for those cities, and as a result of his, of his intercession, at least Lot and his two daughters were saved. Hebron was very important because it was there that Abraham had negotiated with the sons of Heth for the purchase of a cave, the cave of Machpelah. And it was there that Abraham and Sarah were buried. It was there that Isaac and Rebekah were buried. It is there that Jacob and Leah were buried. And so to the Israelites of that time, this was the most sacred point, a place in their existence. The, the, the land of their forefathers, of their patriarchs, and, and of course to them it would have been a place of special note. Three things are noted here in this passage about Hebron. First of all, we're told that the Anakim lived there. This was a race of giants, physical giants, three of whom are named here in this particular passage. And they become the leading excuse, the leading excuse for those who are too fearful to attempt the conquest of the land. We can't do it because there are giants in the land. What would they have done if it weren't for the giants? You know, they'd have had to try to concoct some other excuse. Oh, they would have. What's interesting is the names of these three men show up again in the 15th chapter of Joshua. And that, of course, is the account where giants are no giants. Caleb takes the mountain. <laughs> Caleb's not afraid of the giants. And the scripture tells us that he drove them out of the land and captured the city. And, of course, Caleb was then 40 years older than he was now. He told them if they didn't move, he'd hit them with his cane, and so they all left. <laughs> Some 400 years later, after the death of King Saul, David made Hebron his home. And he made it the capital of Israel for seven and a half years until he captured Jerusalem. So Hebron is a city of great, great importance in Israelite history. And, and you can understand, it's also a very important city to the, uh, to the Arabs because Abraham is their father too. And as a result, Hebron is where you keep seeing all this trouble. One of the primary places where you see all this trouble happening over there and rock throwing and everything that's going on. Even, even when we were there in 81 and then a couple of times in later years, it was always a bit of a, you were kind of nervous in Hebron because you knew that the bulk of the population there wasn't terribly friendly and uh, there was always a very strong presence of, of Israeli military, you know. If you're comfortable walking around with people carrying machine guns, then, you know, it's a comfortable place to be. As long as you figure they're on your side, it's okay. But anyway, Secondly, we're told in this passage, parenthetically, that the city was built just seven years before Zon, or Tanis, as it's also known. 
was established in the Nile Delta. Now, this is a very obscure statement. We know very little about the origin of the city of Zon or Tanis. It's very possible that it was one of the cities built by the Israelites when they were living in the land of Goshen because it was directly north, about 50 miles north of the land of Goshen. But other than that, I mean, this, this is about all we know. And since we don't know for sure when Zon was built, it doesn't really help us too much here to know exactly when Hebron was established. And what it means, of course, is the Hebron that the spies saw, not the Hebron that Abraham knew, because Zon was apparently built after the time of, of Abraham. In fact, many uh, commentators feel that Zon was built approximately in the 18th century, which would probably have been within the time frame of Israel being in Egypt. In Abraham's day, and, and if you were here, if you were with us when we talked went through the book of Genesis, you know that Hebron was called Kiriath Arba at first. Kiriath Arba means four villages. Hebron means league or union. And it seems that the origin of that name is either the merging of those four villages together to form the one town and or the league between Abraham and the sons of Heth, the alliance that was created between them. Uh, may also be the origin of the name Hebron. The reference here seems to be to the greater city that was built after the time of Abraham. When Abraham lived here, it was basically a village. But now, at this particular time, it is a walled city. Uh, the spies, as they came into the uh, land and they, as they walked by Hebron were surprised because to them they all they knew was the oral tradition that carried down to them of what Hebron was like as it was known by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then they, they come to this big walled city and they say, whoa, this isn't what we heard about. <laughs> we heard about this little village, you know, probably no walls at all. And here we come to this big stone walled structure here. And so that's probably one of the reasons why they make such a big note of it. It's so different from what they were expecting. Then thirdly, in this passage, uh, we're, we're told about a cluster of grapes. Immediately to the north of the city of Hebron, there exists today, as there did then, a valley which is noteworthy for its vineyards. And you go to Hebron today and you will find that there are vineyards in this valley. Now what's interesting is that they have learned over there to raise grapes in a manner somewhat different than we're accustomed to here in California. Here, of course, we raise the grapes straight up like this, and then we have them branch out on wires, and we irrigate the crop down below. But over there, uh, the, the basic plant lies on the ground so that it can collect the dew that comes in the, in the morning and at night, the dew, and, and that dew will then collect and drop underneath and provide some moisture for the plant because these are... Uh, historically, they have not been irrigated uh, plants. And so it's really funny to see these grapevines kind of stretched out on the ground rather than, you know, up like we're used to seeing them in Cal. I was raised in Fresno. <laughs> and, and Fresno was known as the raisin capital of the world when I was a kid. And we used to have the raisin bowl there, you know. I don't know, maybe they still do, football, you know, raisin bowl. But that's not how <laughs> vineyards are, are prepared down there. So uh, this, this is quite different. Uh, it was just amazing to look at all these plants out across this valley, and they're all lying out on the ground like this. But uh, it obviously was pretty successful here because we read in the passage 
that the spies cut a cluster of grapes that was so heavy that it took two men and a pole, strung between them, to carry these grapes. Now, I've never seen a cluster of grapes that big or that heavy in my life, not even over there. Now, we're told here in this passage that this cluster was so meaningful that the valley was named Eshkol and is still today known as Eshkol, which means cluster, to this very day. Verse 25. When they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Thus they told him and said, We went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev, and the Hittites and Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country, and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. Just so we aren't confused, the term Canaanite is sometimes used generically to refer to all the people who live in Canaan, and sometimes it is used more specifically, and some of the Canaanite peoples are enumerated separately, as some of them are here, such as the Jebusites and the Amorites. But actually, the word Amorite is often used generically, too. In fact, the term Amorite could be used for all of the Semitic-speaking peoples back at the time of Abraham. In fact, many consider Abraham to have been of the Amoritic tribe or, or nation of people when he was called out by God to become the founder of the Hebrew nation. Well, whatever is the case, um, the Canaanites were a particularly fierce people, particularly given over to the worship of pagan deities similar to those of the Phoenicians, sexual fertility gods, and they were usually noted for their warlike nature and for their advanced uh, military science. And so you could understand where, uh, as they come back out of the land, they're a little bit uh, uncertain about this whole thing. In fact, more than a little bit. They, they perform their 40-day reconnaissance, and then they report back to Moses and to Aaron and all the people. And their first words were to validate Moses' promise. Now, Moses had said, and you can read this clear back in the 13th chapter of Exodus, Moses had said, because God gave him this information, he had said to the people as they were about ready to leave Egypt to go on the Exodus, he said, God is taking us to a land that flows with milk and honey. Now, that, of course, is a, um, it's, it's a figure of speech, of course. <laughs> you know, actually find rivers of milk and honey oozing down the hillside. But it, it's, it's a statement of fertility, that the land is fertile, that, that it, it will produce for us, and it will give us a good living. Unfortunately, this was not their principal point. Their principal point wasn't that, yes, it's a land full of milk and honey, and here is the fruit to prove it. Verse 28 begins with a very, very big word. Nevertheless. How many times do we say, nevertheless? <laughs> Yes, God is faithful, nevertheless. Yes, God answers prayer, nevertheless. But that's exactly what they say here. The ten spies vehemently agree. 
that in spite of the fact that the land was bountiful, there was no way they would ever enjoy that bounty because they had three strikes against them. And as you well know, when you have three strikes, you're out. <laughs> you know. There was no way, no way. You know, we use that term a lot, right? No way. <laughs> well, they used it too in Hebrew. <laughs> However it comes out in Hebrew. What were the strikes against them? Well, first of all, the people of the land are militarily too strong for us. I mean, they have chariots and they have horses and they have armor and they have spears and they have regiments and, and they have, I mean, they're prepared to defend themselves. And who are we? A bunch of Bedouins. The only time we've ever done any fighting was a while back over there and it was, it was because God was with us that we won. Yeah, right, it was. Secondly, the second strike against them is that the cities are too strong, too large. They're fortified. They have walls of stone that rise to the heavens. They don't say that, but that's what they're implying here. If you've ever been over there, they don't rise to the heavens at all. Most stone walls don't rise more than 20 or 30 feet, which is, of course, more than you can pole vault, but nevertheless, uh, you know, it's, it's surmountable. It's fascinating to stand over there at the base of the walls of old Jerusalem. And there are places where you can uh, stand next to the wall where the hillside falls away a little bit more, and you can actually see some of the lower foundations of the city, and, and you stand down and you look up, and, you know, the walls do rise uh, nearly 50 feet from where you're standing. Uh, over your head, and it looks very, very impressive. But Jericho had walls somewhat similar to that, and to God, that was no problem at all. Just kind of, you know, just like you do to your little sandcastle, you know, crunch. Uh, no problem to God, but of course, they weren't thinking about what God would do. Why were they, what were they thinking? What can we do? How can we do it? They were counting swords. They were counting experience. Uh, they were counting battle-hardened veterans. They weren't counting on God. And one of the fascinating studies that you can make through the Old Testament is how many times does God give the victory when it's absolutely absurd, humanly speaking, to win the victory? I mean, we know that well, the account of Gideon, where God kept saying, nope, too many men, too many men. You know, <laughs> and, I mean, the army was too small to start with when they had 32,000. And then when God trims it all the way down to 300, why, it's absurd. You know, there's no way. And that's exactly God's point. You will know that you didn't win it by your might and by your power because three million, three, 300 men cannot conquer 50,000 or whatever were the odds. But only by God's strength can it be done. And so this, you know, if this had been their thinking when they came to the third strike, which was the Anakim, it wouldn't have been a problem to them. But it was a big problem to them. They saw at Hebron these descendants of Anak, these persons of gigantic physical proportions, and they were scared spitless, you know, to the point that they would say later on that we appear as grasshoppers in their sight and in our own sight <laughs> compared to them. Now, the Anakim were the descendants of a semi-legendary figure by the name of Anak. And he may have been one of the founders of Hebron. But we'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. All right, now the spies have pointed out, yes, the land is fruitful. It is as you said, Moses, it flows with milk and honey, but three strikes and you're out. We can't take the land. 
they're too strong militarily, their cities are too strong, and there are giants on the land. So there isn't any way we are going to take that land. And then, just in case, someone thought, well, we could squeeze in someplace. They go on to say, there is no open land. There is no unoccupied land. The Amalekites live in the Negev. So we can't live there. The Jebusites and the Amorites live in the hill country. We can't live there. And the Canaanites occupy the plain next to the Mediterranean. And the Canaanites occupy the Jordan Valley. So we can't live there. So there is no place for us to live. Rather than viewing the pagan Canaanites as simply caretakers of the land until they were ready to occupy, which is exactly what was the truth, they viewed them as owners of the land, possessors of the land, and therefore there was no way they could squeeze in or rout the enemy out of the land. One of the greatest truths that Scripture tries to hammer home from Genesis through Revelation is that in our own strength we can do nothing. So in that sense, they have a right view. In their strength, they can't do it. They are out. You know, they have struck out. But they're neglecting their primary resource. They're neglecting their great strength, which is God. And that was the strength of the founders of the Hebrew nation, and that's the strength of the church today, is God himself. And, and there are so many churches around the world today who don't have that strength because, as was true of the city of Ephesus, their candlestick has been removed because their faith in God has been replaced by human methods of trying to build a church and plan a program and carry out a ministry, all in human strength, without it being led of God, empowered by God, and ordained of God. Verse 30, then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we shall surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land, which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. Notice how they're exaggerating now. All the people we saw in it are men of great size. I mean, that's a bunch of hokum. There were three of them. <laughs> that's all. Uh, there also we saw the Nephilim. The sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. Well, obviously, the ten, tri the ten spies had stirred up the crowd. You know how it goes. The murmur gets started, and the murmur rolls through the crowd. And pretty soon they become an angry mob. I don't know how long it took to calm this mob down. The obvious fear of their leaders. I mean, they saw in the eyes of these ten men fear as they recounted the land, as they described the cities and, and the strength of the armies and the giants and the land, and as they spoke of the absurdity of even thinking about the fact that Israel should try to enter the land. And, and this fear spread like wildfire through the camp. Bad news spreads much more rapidly than good news. Bad news spreads like a prairie fire before a 20-mile-an-hour wind. And that's how it was traveling through the camp. And I think some of them were beginning already to shout against Moses and Aaron. 
Why did you guys bring us here? We can't take this land. How come you took us out of the security of Egypt into this hopeless situation in the desert? I mean, look around us. It's brown and dry everywhere we look. If it weren't for the spring here, we'd all die of thirst. And, and we could be by Egypt where we could drink of the great Nile. And we could have our fish and our leeks and our garlics and our cucumbers and our melons and have a slap, you know, and, and have a whip across our backs and have our children raised with no hope in life except to be a slave. They forget all of that part. I think Caleb was yelling and waving his hands and saying, quiet, quiet, uh, you haven't heard from me yet. This is not the report of all the spies. This is only the report of the dumb ten. <laughs> Calmly, quietly, he assured the people that they not only could, but they should invade the land. As he, as he got them quiet and they started listening, the ten were over there chewing their nails and, and, and not very uh, uh, calmly biding their time. And as soon as they had a moment, they broke in to reaffirm that their report was true. What they had said was real. And Caleb is just trying to sugarcoat the whole thing. The people are too strong. The cities are too powerful. And there are giants in the land. And they reinforced their claim by focusing on those giants. The Anakim are there, the descendants of the Nephilim. Now, the Nephilim were first referred to clear back in Genesis chapter 6, verse 4. Before the flood, there were Nephilim. There were giants in the earth in those days. Somehow that genetic trait <laughs> uh, carried through the flood. Well, I don't know how it did. Probably the way it uh, got started in the first place uh, by genetic manipulation by the forces of Satan and demonic uh, fooling around here. And, and creating this, uh, not creating, but developing this, um, this race of giants. And the Anakim were simply the later day version of the Nephilim. It's interesting that uh, today, as far as we know, there is no race of, quote, giants in the world. They were eventually wiped out, uh, even though there are tall people here and there now and then. But there's not usually a race of them uh, that we can, can note. How giant were these giants? Uh, all we can go by is the figure we're given for Goliath. And even though Goliath was not of the same family, he was from Gath, uh, probably related somehow, but he was from Gath. And, and, and Goliath, translated most modestly, comes to about 9'6". Now 9'6 would be fairly tall, uh, today even. But the problem with Goliath was he was not only tall, he was proportioned to, to fit it out. I mean, he was big dude. So you can imagine they'd be a little bit fearful if you were, had to think about clashing directly with somebody like that. I wouldn't like it. <laughs> what do you think they, they meant by the, the land will devour the people or devour us? I, I think what they were doing, <laughs> they were, well, first of all, I think the devouring would be in, in trying to carry on warfare and being killed off by the sword. But it's also possible that they were trying to put a negative spin to this whole thing and say, even though it's a land that flows with milk and honey, there are a lot of wild beasts there. And uh, there are a lot of dark canyons. And there, there were wild beasts there. In fact, uh, we're told later on that God, when he ordered them to conquer the land, they were not to just go through there and wipe out all the enemy armies and then figure out how to settle land. They were to settle it as they went. And the scripture specifically says, so that the wild beasts will not become too numerous for them. So obviously it was a problem. Today you go over there and it's hard, you have a hard time finding a wild beast. I mean, other than the two-footed ones. They, they're, they're really hard to find. And part of the reason for that is the land has been deforested. And it was forested in those days. 
uh, it's deforested and it's just barren open land and where does an animal hide today <laughs> from all of those that might be after it? Well, let me at least uh, begin the next chapter here because what we read about in this next chapter is a very, very powerful a statement of who God is and who God wants his people to be. And as he speaks to Israel, so he speaks to us. Because one of the verses in the middle of the 14th chapter says, As I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. All the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. And it's your purpose and my purpose here to make that glory visible. We are the glory of the Lord. The church of the living God is the glory of the Lord. And we are to exhibit that glory in everything that we do. And, and one of the ways we do that is to live by faith. The scripture says the just shall live by faith. And we have to exhibit that faith all the time. And as I mentioned to you last time, you don't really have faith until that faith is tested. Until that faith is tried, you don't really have faith. Because it's easy to say, oh yes, I can take that mountain until you try to take that mountain. And then when you try to take that mountain, it becomes a difficult chore. Then is when faith is proven. And, and so it is for Israel. I mean, they're standing over here. You know, their knees are knocking. They're biting off their nails. And they haven't even tried to conquer the land. They're sitting out here around this, this spring in the desert, bemoaning the fact that God wants them to go in here and take the land. I mean, they're crying out so badly. They're saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? Why don't we go back home? In fact, let's pick a leader and go home. Home? Egypt is home? I don't think so. But God says, you, in, in spite of the rebellion of those who call themselves God pe God's people, he says, all the earth will be filled with my glory. Whether we are faithful or not, God will fill this earth with his glory. And woe be unto us if when he comes and Jesus said, will I find faith on the earth? And the answer in our case is no. Woe be unto us. It just seems so much today all around us that that everything is falling apart, that the enemy is victorious on every side. But you know, it couldn't have been any worse than it was for Moses because as he stood there, ultimately there were five people, Moses and Aaron and Miriam, Joshua and Caleb. Those were the only five that said, let's do it. God is going to give us the strength, let's do it. There were two and a half million of them saying we can't do it. Those aren't good odds. So it really isn't any worse today, and the earth will be filled with God's glory. You know, I always am reminded of that verse in Philippians that tells us that every knee shall bow in the earth, under the earth, and above the earth to Jesus. Woe be unto those who don't bow until they're forced to as they stand before the judgment. But glory to us, not because of what we have done, but to God, if we bow the knee now here, by our own volition. And God is then able to manifest his glory through us to the world. In the first few verses of chapter 14, then all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. You imagine crying and moaning all night long. Moses had to listen to that. And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. 
they have not only refused to obey God, they have reached out and slapped God across the face, in effect, because they said, why has God brought us here that our women and children will die by the sword there in the land of Canaan? What kind of a God is that? Isn't the God of the Bible? Isn't the God who proved himself over and over again these ten times? You know, in the wilderness and in Egypt. Well, next week we'll pursue that uh, a bit further.